Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms held wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It's the seventeenth of August, twenty twenty-two. Wow, this year is zooming past. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. If this is your first time here, we are seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day so that we'll be able to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus. So welcome, 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 welcome. We're so glad you're here. Um, I want to lead off this morning with a story of two rivers and For those of you who live in a place where there might be like a two river stadiums or where there might be the confluence of two rivers. Yeah, this is not that story. Uh, These two rivers, this is also not like, you know, the stories of two rivers from the Bible. No, these are two rivers, um, one in Nepal and one in New Zealand. And I just want to quickly brief you in on this, because I think when we talk about worldview and we talk about uh, the issues that we deal with day to day, these two stories actually bring so many worldview concerns forward, um, and I think it's, you know, it's helpful. It's helpful to use things that are happening in other places in the world and say, hmm, how do I think about this as a Christian? How do I think about this as a person who um, understands God to be God and creation not to be God? Okay, so here we go. Well, that gives you like a little hint into the worldview conversation. So the first river we're going to look at is um, a river in Nepal. Uh, It is considered holy. It is the Bagmati River. And sadly, tragically, it is choked with black sewage and trash. So um, the the story in the Associated Press related to this quote-unquote holy river starts this way. High on a mountain in the Himalayas, pristine drops fall from the mouth of of a tiger statue installed at a stream thought to form the headwaters of the Bagmati River, revered as having the power to purify human souls. Yeah, there you go. That's the lead in to the conversation about this river in Nepal. It then goes on to talk about as the river goes uh, downhill, um, it's collecting all kinds of human refuse, um, bodily and otherwise. Uh, It then goes on to describe um, how Hindus use this particular river um, on a daily cultural and spiritual level. Talks about Hindus flocking to its riverbanks to worship at shrines and celebrate festivals, dipping into the river to wash away sins, Um, a day of worship. um, They believe the river guides humanity. Uh, Anyway, on and on and on. So... um, what and where does that sound like to you? Just off the top of your head, you know, is there a river you could imagine people flocking to um, because it's the place where they believe they should be immersed um, and cleansed of their sins? Yeah. I mean, that sounds a lot like baptism and it sounds a lot like the River Jordan. So when we when we read a story like this and it sounds like it's really distant and these Hindu beliefs are really far from us, I want you to consider that actually... It's like right there on the edge of the truth. It's just not the truth. It's just right there on the edge of the truth. It's just not the truth. 
The second river I want to bring into view today um, is a river in New Zealand. It is a river. It's the river that gained legal personhood status in 2017. And I know you probably weren't listening to me on the radio in 2017, but I was talking about this river. Um, and uh, and the people who believe that it is not only holy, but that this is the river that is life. It is the source of life. And so the conversation uh, here in religionnews.com about this river in New Zealand um, is very specifically focused on um, the river's rights and the right of the river as a person, personhood status. Just think about that for just a moment. Um, and the way that the law uh, now gives the river the rights of a, quote, living force, which is what the people um, living throughout the region believe. They believe that the river itself is a living force. So here is uh, here is just a, one thing here from the Associated Press. The Associated Press followed the 180-mile river upstream to find out uh, its what its status means to those whose lives are entwined with the waters. Uh, they believe that um, it is a living, it is a living person is my best way to describe it. I mean, that's their language. So they have this saying, I am the river and the river is me. So a couple of worldview considerations really quickly here. First, we should consider the creation mandate. We should consider human stewardship of what God has made. We should reread Genesis chapter 1. We should recognize that um, in creating us male and female, creating us in his image, uh, God then blessed humanity and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Um, God gives us everything and then sets us as stewards over it. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good, very good. The creation mandate is pre-fall. I mean, the creation mandate is a part of God's good creation. And so, yeah, when we see a, a a river clogged with black sewage and trash, then, yeah, we're failing to live into our calling as stewards of creation. But the mandate is also about the rightful use of what God has made and its right place in our understanding, which leads to the second worldview consideration, which we might um, see as the temptation to exchange the worship of the creator for that which is created. And that's sort of the story of the river in New Zealand. And there we might turn to Romans chapter 1. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that God has made. So people are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And yes, rivers. Creation mandate is real, is real. Creation is precious and we are stewards of it. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Proverbs nineteen seventeen. If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay you. What does that mean? We're going to talk about that next with Pastor Daryl Crouch. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge and this is Faith Radio. Days that I thought would never end. 
Pastor Daryl Crouch is back. He serves with Everyone's Wilson. Good morning, sir. Well, good morning, Carmen. Great to be with you. It's wonderful to have you. So we like to move with you from the living Word of God to living out the Word of God. And so I thought it would be fun to look at our verse of the day today. So there's lots of folks listening who get this in their email every morning, our um, our verse of the day, and it's Proverbs 19:17 today. If you help the poor, you're lending to the Lord, and He will repay you. Can you talk with us about this passage? I can, and uh, I love Proverbs, and I know a lot of our listeners do, and a lot of us uh, read a proverb a day or a, a chapter out of Proverbs, and and um, we we think that this is um, a, a series or a collection of wisdom that Solomon gave to us um, sometime, you know, in the middle of his life. And um, <clears throat> these are principles to live by. And so uh, not not promises necessarily, but they're principles to live by. And so uh, this idea of, of, of uh, helping the poor, sometimes we can get really granular and uh, we can talk about that in a moment. But um, um, it seems that Solomon, uh, by inspir- inspired by the Holy Spirit, is is calling us to an attitude toward those who are less fortunate, an attitude and an action of generosity, uh, actions of generosity that come from an attitude of favor and generosity. Uh, and he's saying, listen, I love, I love people, uh, whoever they are in whatever financial or material station they are. And when you help those around you, when you live with a generous spirit, when you live with an open hand, uh, it's as if you are giving to me. Uh, Jesus said something similar, as you do unto the least of these, you do it unto me. There's this sense that that, that the Lord is saying, uh, I care about the vulnerable very, very much. And when you care about the vulnerable, you are joining me in, a very, in something that's very personal. And um, you are you are joining my activity. And he said, listen, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And so I think it's important that we step back and we say, listen, the Lord is our provider. Uh, he's our provider and he, he's the provider of all, all people. And he often provides for others through you and me. And uh, so in essence, we are joining God's activity in caring and loving our neighbors uh, sometimes we would we have an attitude, I think, or a some sort of uh, idea that uh, it's someone else's responsibility to take care of other people or to show kindness to others. That somebody else will do that, and, and I really think Solomon is saying, "Listen, this is this is for you to step into. This isn't for someone else. This is for you to step into, and it's an overflow or an outflow of a relationship with the Lord." Uh, and he's promised to partner with us in that. So we're going to continue this conversation about if you help the poor, you're lending to the Lord and he will repay you. Um, we're going to talk about what it means to be poor. We're going to talk about Jesus um, saying that the poor would always be among us. We're also going to consider the wealth of Solomon, right? Uh, so I don't know, in today's net worth, somewhere in the neighborhood of $21 trillion would have been like his personal wealth. Um, King Solomon literally had a fortune. And so when he talks about the wisdom of helping the poor, 
what 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 does it mean to do so from so from a position of such extraordinary wealth? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. Hey, if you enjoy what you're listening to here, would you consider subscribing to other great faith radio podcasts like mine? Search Susie Larson Live at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. All right, somebody did the math during the break, and apparently if King Solomon's net worth was $1.056 trillion in 1992, it's now the next thing up. So uh, instead of trillion, what's next? Quadrillion? Quadrillion, uh, yes, yes. His, uh, his net worth would today be four quadrillion, three hundred and forty-one trillion seven hundred and twenty million nine hundred ninety-seven dollars and eighty-six cents. All right, so we are talking with Pastoral Daryl Crouch, who um, serves the poor in many ways and helps those um, who want to leverage their wealth, um, partner with those uh, in the community who um, need some help. And so we're talking about Proverbs 19.17, if you help the poor, you're lending to the Lord and he will repay you. So, Daryl, um, you know, there's, I think, so many threads we could pull here. Jesus talking about the, the, the reality that the poor would always be among us. Um, the early church and its charitable ways, but the extraordinary wealth out of which Solomon was um, was proclaiming this this wisdom as well. Yeah, that's pretty profound. I don't really know what all those numbers you just said mean. Me either. Except for uh, he was uh, <laughs> he he didn't uh, he wasn't looking for payday uh, every uh, twice a month. That wasn't on his radar a lot. So uh, he lived in a different in a different stratosphere than most of us do. But I would say this, that uh, most of us probably listening to this broadcast and living in Western, in, in the West, um, we, we are blessed in a way that many people in the first century could never uh, imagine. Uh, many people, uh, even in, in Solomon's day, could never imagine. Uh, the, the comforts and the, um, the way of life that we enjoy uh, is is literally unprecedented uh, in in most cases, and so I think while we can say Solomon was really rich, ninety uh, percent of the world today would say that you and I uh, and many of our listeners are really rich, and so the numbers at that point really don't mean a lot uh, to uh, to most of the world. Uh, the, the the disparity between us and Solomon, for example, really isn't that big of an issue for uh, 90 or, or so percent of the world. And so I think we, putting it in perspective is really is really helpful. And certainly that kind of money uh, awes all of us, but, uh, but most of us um, have the ability to live in such a way uh, to care for those around us. And, um, and uh, I, I do think too, one, one of the things that I've, in this conversation as I thought through what we would talk about today is the, is this sense of lifestyle expectation mm. that we have and um, what that means for us in terms of how we think about money, how we handle money, how we uh, give money uh, or not give money. Um, I think uh, those things go to a, to a heart that's really uh, important to, to shepherd uh, through these uh, through these conversations. And so um, that really does drive. And that's really what Jesus was getting at when he said, the poor will always be among you because 
that's in a context of of um, um, Mary uh, pouring out perfume, uh, very expensive perfume on him as an act of worship. And uh, th there was an attitude that that is wasteful. Uh, and Jesus was saying, no, no, that's not wasteful. Uh, uh, and don't use the poor as an excuse not to be generous in your worship. Mm. Don't use the poor as a prop to uh, um, hide uh, your own uh, selfishness and your own selfish motives and your your um, your own desire to have more and to to, um, to 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 be more than than you are and so I think sometimes um, we we hear that verse uh, used um, in ways that really Jesus never intended it to be used I, I think his his goal was to say listen extravagant worship is always appropriate and uh, don't use the poor as a prop um, to prevent those uh, f people from from doing that and so um, uh, also I think it's important that we understand that poverty is ultimately a relationship problem it's a brokenness problem and so it's remedied not simply by giving money away which that can help someone I I talk about this a lot in, in our context, uh, in, in our ministry, but uh, if you're bleeding out, you need a Band-Aid. But a, but a, or if, if you have an emergency, a medical emergency, you need to go to the emergency room. But we don't build healthy communities on emergency rooms or on Band-Aids. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we build healthy communities on healthy relationships. And so uh, we, we want to uh, provide the emergency rooms, the food pantries, we want to be generous with people as we uh, go along the way. But ultimately, the help that people need is found in relationship, relationship with God, a relationship with one another, um, and um, a relationship with themselves and what they were created to do. But that only happens when we take time and we make time for people who uh, are finding themselves crushed under the weight of brokenness. I think there are times, Daryl, that we, um, because we imagine that what we have is ours and because we imagine that um, the relative comfort in which we live is ours to enjoy, um, we don't even see the wealth that we have. We don't see the wealth of empty bedrooms. We don't see the wealth of, um, you know, the extra car that's parked in the garage. We don't see the wealth, like we don't see the resources that are literally within our under our under our personal stewardship or within our reach, you know, we don't see the extra um, place at the table as, you know, we see that as that person's no longer there for whatever reason. We don't see it as an empty chair that, you know, God intends to be filled by a person who would, would want nothing more in all the world than to have a chair to sit in and eat a meal. And um, I do think that part of this is a perception issue for us. We imagine that let's say our prodigal children, um, you know, are of are of greater concern than the person who right now is in need of a place to um, to live and to uh, and would and would joyfully join our family. Like I, I just think that the that the way that we have come to think about us and ours is is is, is broken. 
And I'm not saying I have the answer to this, but I'm saying that if we've got an empty place at the table, there's a person who would love to be sitting there. And so let us not grieve the empty chair. Let us go invite somebody to fill it. Absolutely. I think our failure to embrace the hospitality mandate of loving our neighbor um, is um, it has created a, um, um, a, a poverty in our communities that is far beyond financial. And so the, the image that you've just uh, given us about having a, a seat at our table, that table doesn't just represent food, although it does. Right, it right. represents family. It represents relationship. It represents the, the um, solution to isolation, which many people live with. And um, and that's where uh, our gospel mandate lives in uh, loving our neighbor, uh, in um, uh, building relationships that um, that can give people hope and to let them know that they're loved and that there's a future and God has a purpose for them. And he's provided a remedy in Christ. And uh, that's where these needs are met. Um, But what has happened is the church has generally speaking, not, not all churches and not all of us, but generally speaking, we've, we've stayed in a silo and then we've expected that our tax dollars will be given to a government entity who will take care of those people. Mm. When, um, and, and there is no, there is no social network or social net government program that can remedy the brokenness uh, in our community that can remedy, for example, uh, the, the absence of a father and mother who love one another and love their children and provide for them. Um, there's, there's no government remedy or taxpayer solution uh, for the brokenness that uh, uh, plagues many of our communities. It is only when gospel people, Jesus people, um, love neighbor well, invite those neighbors into their lives around their table, Uh, literally or figuratively, however that can work, but around their table and in their lives, uh, that's when we'll see progress and that's when we'll see uh, people thrive because it's it's in that context of relationship that all of us have the opportunity to live the life that God created us to live. And um, I think when we live in isolations and in isolation and go behind our front doors, close our front doors, stay behind our privacy fences in the backyard, um, that has created as much brokenness as um, maybe anything that we've seen in this generation. Daryl, as always, um, thank you so much. If you guys want, you know, really practical, down to earth, where it's happening now, um, vision and some resources, check out what Daryl's doing day to day at everyoneswilson.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. It occurs to me that every single day here on Mornings with Carmen, we could actually just read an obituary. We could reflect on um, a life well lived among us by a fellow Christian, because every single day there are those who are um, moving from this life into the life to come. Um, they are they are passing beyond that one degree of glory that currently uh, separates us from the full unity 
of life in Christ forevermore. Like, right. So, um, so one of the people who passed from this life to the life to come um, on Monday night it was Frederick Beekner. And many of you have probably read Beekner's books at some point along the way, um, or you have heard him quoted, even if you've never read um, his works. And so in the lead into the next conversation here, I just want to um, actually read the walk-off portion of Jim Dennison's article posted this morning at denisonforum.org um, because he talks about Fred, Frederick Beekner. So this is what Jim Dennison says uh, uh, on this point. Frederick Beekner passed away Monday night at his home in Rupert, Vermont, at the age of 96. Beekner wrote novels, essays, and personal memoirs that deeply touched my mind and heart with his artistry and authenticity. In Wishful Thinking, Beekner noted, It is impossible for man to demonstrate the existence of God. It is as, it is as impossible for man to demonstrate the existence of God as it would be for even Sherlock Holmes to demonstrate the existence of Arthur Conan Doyle. But we can do better than logical proofs. A Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I can't prove a thing, but there's something about his eyes and his voice. There's something about the way that he carries his head, his hands, the way he carries his cross, the way he carries me. Are you allowing Christ to carry you today? How will you glorify him for such grace? We're going to talk with Mark Terman next from the Denison Forum. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, Mark Terman from the Denison Forum. You can find much of what we're talking about today at denisonforum.org. Mark, welcome back. Well, good morning, Carmen. Great to be with you. Good morning. So um, I was intrigued by, uh, by a piece that is posted at Denison Forum, and so I am going to read the headline and ask the question simultaneously. Will, okay. democracy, will democracy in America survive? Well, always a good question. Um, many people are wondering about that. A few are talking about it, I think. Um, democracy as a concept, I think, is definitely going to survive uh, because it's of its merits. Um, but there's a lot of concern, particularly in our part of the world, about how we're doing our republic right now. And uh, there are reasons for concern, no doubt. So when we think about um, when we think about democracy, um, we we think probably mostly about our own experience of it. We don't think about the big idea. We don't think about the the vision. We don't think about um, how it is supposed to function or um, or how it was designed or the people really for which it was designed. So do you want to talk a little bit about um what the Bible says about how we are subject to governing authorities and then apply that to the United States of America? Sure, I'll, I'll give it my best shot, all right? <laughs> um, the Bible has a lot to say, and the, the interesting thing is, particularly when you're reading in the New Testament the writings of Paul on this topic, whether you're looking at Romans or uh, some of the places in his letters to Timothy, uh, it's amazing when 
he tells us, you know, particularly when he's instructing Timothy about how to lead and pastor his church, he says, first of all, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. And then immediately after that says, I want you to pray for kings and all those who are in authority. The amazing context of that, Carmen, is that the, the leader at that point, the king, is a guy by the name of Nero, who we know from history persecute, persecuted Christians and, and attacked the church in uh, unbelievable kinds of ways, even at times lighting the city of Rome by burning the, the lives and the bodies of Christians as martyrs to the faith. And uh, to live in a context like Paul, where he was opposed by Rome, he was tried by Rome, he was ultimately executed by Rome, and he knows that this is the context, and yet he's saying God is still greater than Nero. God is greater than every human authority. And God gave us, as he says in Romans, he gave us government. He gave us authority for the good of the world. Uh, government in and of itself, political authorities and, and leaders, they are not in and of themselves as an organization and an institution bad um, they can act in bad ways, but they are necessary for the ordering and healthy functioning of society. We need to recognize that. We need to honor that. And we need to do all that we can to support that, whether that's in a, a representative democracy like we have, fortunately, where we get to have a voice, we get to vote, we get to participate, uh, or in other governmental systems where may not be what we would say is uh, the best for people, but uh, Christianity has survived and actually thrived in a lot of different governmental authoritative type structures. We're fortunate to have a democracy where we can participate and we ought to be grateful for that. And we ought to be doing that in the most redemptive ways possible. When you think about um, the status of things in the United States right now, I mean, one of the things that we're reading about is the the rise in political violence, um, the the growing um, percentage of Americans who believe that words are violence, and therefore, if if a word pierces them, then they can actually like physically hit back. Um, we saw this. I mean, maybe most most recently, and uh, with with terrible consequences um, in the stabbing of Salman Rushdie, like, right? So we're, yeah. we're talking about a person who always and in every environment has only ever used words, but his words uh, in, a, in, a, in an environment where words are considered violence, then a person imagines that taking out actual physical violence against a person with whose words we disagree is appropriate. So um, talk with us about the, the rhetoric, talk with us about political violence in the United States. Yeah, it's become pretty scary on a lot of fronts, for sure. And we are more partisan, more grouped up in our political tribes probably than we've ever been, or it, at least it feels that way to many of us. We we don't know what it was like to live 50 or 100 or 150 years ago in our country. But because of our awareness of each other through media, particularly social media, what the internet has been able to do for us, we're certainly more aware of more opinions and of, of more words, as you said, coming from a lot of different directions. And we have gotten to the place now, you've, you may have seen some of the statistics where uh, doesn't matter what, what political party you're in, you view with high, high suspicion in America today, the other group, 
It didn't used to be that way even 10 or 20 years ago. But in the last couple of decades, we've gotten to the place where if you don't agree with me, if you're not a part of my tribe, then you're a threat. And you're not just simply a threat in terms of ideas. You're actually, in many people's minds, an actual physical threat that needs to be dealt with and even removed in some cases. And, and so what we're seeing is, is a lot of tug of war around this wonderful principle that we have in our Constitution called the freedom of speech. And it's great that we can have our thoughts, that we can share our thoughts, but we also need to realize that, uh, as many have said, ideas have consequences. Ideas and words are powerful. And the Bible speaks to that, obviously. Uh, James talks about that in terms of the use of our words and our, our mouths. Uh, Jesus talked about that. He said, anything uh, that you say will be something you're held account for when you stand before God. Uh, we need to be careful with our words. We need to be loving with our words and all, also obviously truthful with our words. But, but we don't want to hurt or destroy each other and let our words become a catalyst, particularly for physical violence. That is always something that the Bible uh, counsels us against and tells us that is not honoring to God. Um, it's been like a, a 10 or 11 years ago now um, that I wrote reflecting on another group of people in a in a particular situation um, who had fallen asleep and been asleep for a very long time. And I used Rip Van, the story of Rip Van Winkle to reflect on what it looks like and means to, you know, to wake up 20 years later. Um, and so I want to remind people about the story of Rip Van Winkle quickly here um, as we consider where we are and uh, and what it means, this sleepwalking to disaster or this sleepwalking um, in the midst of uh, of the days in which we live here in America. So in the story of Rip Van Winkle, um, this like lazy, unproductive, but well-loved villager literally sleeps through the American Revolution. And so he um, he follows the lead of a spirit that makes him drink a tonic. And he's anyway, he, he literally falls asleep. He sleeps throughout the whole war. He sleeps uh, through the growth of his children. He sleeps through the death of his wife and his friends. And when he wakes up, he's not only understandably disoriented, he he's still like proclaiming loyalty to the king, which gets him into trouble because America no longer bows at that point to King George III, but to George Washington as president. And he walks around in this fog, unable to reorient himself to a new reality. And so in, in Rip Van Winkle's case, you know, he goes to sleep under, you know, uh, under the regime of, uh, of England and wakes up in America. We have a lot of people who fell asleep sometime in sort of the, you know, the, the positive heyday of American democracy, and they're still asleep and they think that's where we live and we don't live there anymore. Yeah, I think you're right. And we have to wake up and, and understand the reality and the context that we are in. And, you know, as you were talking, I was just reminded of a verse and a story that was uh, coming across my mind a couple of days ago where Jesus is in the garden. He's just about to be arrested and taken to the cross. And he asked his friends, he asked the disciples, watch and pray, watch and pray, be awake, be alert and watch for what God is going to do and how you need to participate in it. And what do we know from that story? We know that these men who'd been busy with him all day, they get to sit down and they fall asleep. And it mm. goes to exactly what you're talking about. This is an intense time. This is a critical moment. 
Uh, I don't know if we could call it a Garden of Gethsemane moment, but it is a very significant and intense time within our country. We need to be awake. We need to be alert. The Bible says that so many different times and in so many different ways. Be alert and be prayerful so that when God wants you to step into a situation, whether it's in your neighborhood or in your community or in a voting booth, that you're ready to step into that with the Spirit's help and with the Bible as your guide and to do that which Dr. Jim talks to us all the time about, which is to speak the truth and to do the truth in love in every good way we can. Hmm. We're going to continue our conversation here with Mark Turman from the Denison Forum. We're going to pivot to a conversation about um, an Episcopal diocese that has committed to spend $10 million for reparations. How? That's the question before us. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Cause I hear a voice and he calls me every day When others say I'll never be enough We're continuing our conversation with Mark Turman from the Denison Forum. You can find him at denisonforum.org. Mark, um, read us in a little bit on this Virginia Episcopal Diocese, which is now committed to spending $10 million for reparations. Now comes the question of how and to whom. And, the, I mean, reparations is a big conversation um, happening across the country. This gives us an opportunity to look at how it's happening in one particular um, place in America. Yeah, Carmen. So the uh, story came out in the Washington Post about the uh, Episcopal Diocese of Virginia uh, committing $10 million to the idea and to the action of reparations, which on the face of it, I got to tell you, is uh, in some ways a bold and courageous move. I think that this is a group of people who, you know, as the article relates, you know, Virginia was kind of ground zero for the arrival of enslaved people coming to our country back in its earliest days. And uh, and I love the spirit of this in which these people are saying, you know what, we've talked and we've talked and we've talked. We, we want to be more intentional about taking action uh, to address some of the historical uh, sin of our founding and obviously slavery being the primary issue, being the issue as some have have called it the original sin of our of our founding and we've done a lot we've done a lot in our country over more than 200 years to try to to work on this and to correct this obviously we've fought a war over this and many other kinds of battles as well we have a long long way to go please hear me that we have a long way to go in doing all that we can to make this right um, but I love the spirit of the Episcopal Diocese and saying, you know what, we don't want to just be people of talk. We want to actually do something. And they've committed a substantial amount of money to it. Uh, the real challenge is, is how do you do that? 
And even for some people, there's a real challenge in just thinking about uh, the word reparation. And uh, for some people, that's just a, a lightning rod of a word because it seems to communicate for some, okay, you want to draw a direct line from something my grandfather, my great-grandfather, or my great-great-grandfather might have done and saying that I'm guilty of it because of what they may have done, you know, decades or centuries ago. I had a man in my church say, you know what, it's not, it's not my calling to repent for something that my great-grandfather did. And I think the Bible supports that idea. Uh, and so the word reparation has really become a lightning rod in that way. But acknowledging our history, which I think most people are willing to uh, to embrace and to talk about, hey, you know what, slavery was wrong in every way that can be imagined it's wrong. And it has generational, long-term generational effects that we need to continue to restore and that we need to address. And what are we going to do to find the best ways to do that, which is where the real challenge is? So I think that when we've had this conversation with others, um, you know, part of the conversation uh, is the difference between guilt and responsibility um, or, um, you know, the the difference between my personal sin versus um, what is now, you know, generational and then institutionalized sin. And I think when we talk about, let's say, institutions like the Episcopal Church, which, um, you know, which Mark and I are doing, um, recognizing that neither of us are a part of the Episcopal Church in the United States of America, which is a distinct denomination. Um, but there's like, you know, one particular, I mean, literally one location, one particular Episcopal Church called Trinity Church. It's got, you know, it's got more than $6 billion in its asset portfolio. You know, it sits at the end of Wall Street. Um, it's been there since it was chartered by, I think, King George III. Like it's been it's it's been there for like literally forever. Um, uh, it, you know, the the land was given um, to the church from Queen Anne in 1705. All right. First chartered by King William III in 1697. So I think that when we talk about some institutions in the country that that have been around since the beginning, and and the extraordinary wealth they possess, it does um, it does seem as if if there are going to be reparations, it should be from institutions like this. I mean, am I, I, I you know, they the institutions were offenders um, and the institutions did amass and use the human capital of slavery in in building up themselves um, and they used theology to do it um, in many, many cases. And so I guess I'm one of those people who feels like mm, the, the amassed institutional wealth of, um, of particular congregations that are, that are historic in this way, um, and then also some institutions, um, I, I'm, I'm okay with this conversation about figuring out a way to um, allow those who, whose families did lose out on wealth building, even as these institutions enjoyed particular privileges in the culture of the day. I mean, do, do you see that what I'm trying to weigh out there, Mark? Yeah, I think I think it's a legitimate point, and I would agree with you that um, those institutions who certainly can identify, you know, the legacy of their connection to this and 
and how they participated or how the, the forefathers that came before them in their institution or in their congregation, uh, some, some of these organizations like Trinity Church, as you said, can draw pretty direct lines to mm -hmm. how their congregation or their denomination participated. And there, there certainly seems to be and should be, I think, a real sense of taking responsibility. And I love the distinction between responsibility and guilt. Hey, the Bible says I'm not responsible for somebody else's sin, especially one of my relatives that lived long ago. Um, but it does say that I have a responsibility when I see need. I, I love the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the Good Samaritan wasn't responsible for the man on the side of the road in his situation, certainly not directly, but he took responsibility and he was willing to demonstrate generosity. So especially when you can draw pretty clear historical lines of responsibility for your congregation, your denomination, your institution, then yes, that those people in those organizations, those congregations should be on the front line of saying, how can we make this better? How can we come up with a, a meaningful way of helping people, families, uh, even groups? How can we do that in a way that encourages them, inspires them, equips them, resources them so that they can move out of some of the generational cycles that, that they have found themselves trapped in uh, because of what our history is. I don't have any problem with that at all. Doing that and doing that in a very thoughtful as well as biblically informed way is where the real challenge is. Yeah, this is, needs to be an ongoing conversation for all of us. I want to direct people to a really good news story posted at denisonforum.org that Mark and I don't now have time to talk about. Um, but there's a caregiver who asked her Downs patients to be her bridesmaids. You're not going to want to miss that. You can find it at denisonforum.org. Mark, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Carmen. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, the good news is we have another hour together. The bad news is we've already used up an hour. I know, where does the time go? Well, let's give all honor and glory and praise to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord this day. Let's count on the Holy Spirit to equip and empower us as we go forth into this day. Well, thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.